You're listening to the Merged Marketing Podcast with me, Jason Hunt. The mission with this show is to discuss all things marketing, sales, and mindset. It's my hope for entrepreneurs like you to get the most from your efforts so that you can focus on what you do best. Let's go. You're listening to episode 194 of the Merged Marketing Podcast. In this episode, we're talking about exploring the challenges of scaling with performance marketing. My guest on today's show is Faisal Siddiqui. Faisal is a board-level strategist for Fortune 10s, startups, and nonprofits. Faisal is on a mission to make brand marketing more accountable and effective for all. In this episode, we dive into the importance of branding and comparing it to performance marketing and why having the best of both worlds may be an effective strategy for your business. Without further ado, let's kick to my chat with Faisal Siddiqui. Faisal, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. Awesome. And maybe before we get into the topic today, give us a bit of background into your journey into marketing because it's quite interesting. I started as an artist or I started with a background in fine arts in high school. And then I decided I wanted to have a fulfilling life where I could pay the rent. So then I switched to an underground business. And then I didn't really know what the world of brand was. I didn't know the difference, frankly, between advertising and brand and and the fact that these are often different industries completely. Less so in Canada, more so abroad. And so I foolishly wrote a letter to a brand agency in the UK and they made the mistake of hiring me as an intern. So I just ended up in the UK for my first job. That was in 2008. And then I stayed there ever since. And then I did the stereotypical thing, which was I met a Canadian there who also worked with at the same company as I did. And then we moved back to Canada, start my own firm and to start a family. So that's in a nutshell how I got into the world of brand. Very interesting. And why do you say Canada is different than other places? Frankly, just because I think the standard is not as high. I'll just go and say that. I also think if you think about where the divergence was between, say, brand development consultancies and advertising, that fork in the road happened in the kind of early 60s. So originally, if you think about an Ogilvy's or a DB, these were very integrated agencies where everything would happen there from media buying all the way to copywriting to developing the brands. What happened was there was a separate strain that developed specifically in the UK around packaging design. And so packaging design became a separate discipline. And then from that grew the idea, we wanted to create a brand identity. And really famous agencies like Wolf Hollins, for example, or Interbrand started from that. Or in the US, it was actually design firms that focused on product. If you think about Landor in San Francisco, they were famous for doing some of the logos for different products like, like Apple. And so... They came from a different place and then they grew into a separate type of industry, which just dealt with brands. So the way the industry kind of bifurcated was if you want to go and create a brand, if you're a large organization, you want to go and create a brand, or if you want to reposition your brand, or if you want to develop a visual identity for your brand, you went to these separate things called brand agencies. And that's your interbrands, your Wolf Allens, your Lipping Cots and your Profits. Whereas if you wanted to do your everyday advertising, you would go to your ad agencies. And the world of advertising and marketing, sometimes these things converge, sometimes they break apart. But at least in the UK and in the US, they were two separate fields. Within Canada, though, it tended to be still all done in-house at the ad agencies. 
And so interestingly, some of the larger brand consultancies like Interbrand, they used to have an office here, but it's primarily a sales office. So that type of separate discipline for the art of brand strategy and brand identity never developed in, into a full-fledged thing on its own within Canada. But we're trying to change that at a creative business company. I think that's a very interesting point that you bring up because it does require two totally separate skill sets, right? So how do those two best marry themselves together in a perfect world? So I think that's a really interesting point, at least on the strategic side or even on the kind of creative side. My view in terms of what is the difference between the two skill sets between advertising and someone who works at a brand consultancy is that the, the scope and the horizon at a brand consultancy is far broader and far longer. So you're thinking about not creating a campaign that's going to last a few months, or you're not trying to drive sales in the next quarter, you're talking about over the next five years. So typically brand strategists, and at least in my experience, and identity designers think far broader. And, I, and the way I'm saying it makes it sounds like that's a better thing is not necessarily a better thing. Because conversely, if you take a brand identity designer or a brand strategist, they also tend to struggle to really condense something down to go into an ad with a very clear proposition and a product to drive a call to action. And so advertising folks tend to be a lot better at saying, what are we trying to sell here? How are we trying to drive response? How are we going to get people to change their behavior or click on something or do something or buy something now? They're different skill sets. It's very rare that they come together. We're trying to do that right now. So we have, that was the genesis for why I left profit and started creative business company, but was to marry the two, the brand consulting with the advertising, but it's hard and it's difficult because to your point, they are different skill sets. They are different skill sets, but they, it's so important for, I would say the agency to have the um, visibility into the data to be able to feed what actually works to the branding agency, because maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, if you just come up with an idea for a brand and you put it out there without doing any data-driven tests, you're throwing darts at a dartboard blindfolded in a sense without that data. I would agree. I would agree. And I think the two disciplines would use different data sets. So whereas ad agencies or performance marketing firms are really good at looking at uh, short-term sales data or funnel data, for example, mm. I think what they do not are often not privy to is what is the business strategy? What mm. is the five-year marketing strategy? How are we going to drive them in? What is the pricing strategy? So those longer term, I'm using the word data sets broadly, are different sets of inputs that inform a product that is designed to last for a longer period of time and to drive impact over a longer period of time. But to your point, I think it is converging. I think you need to know both. I know a lot of really good performance firms, and we're big fans of, of really good performance firms, who end up doing the positioning, the brand positioning for smaller clients because they've done tons of campaigns. They know what works, right? And we're saying like, hey, we're seeing a pattern here, right? We're seeing a pattern between all of these different campaigns and it's these types of themes that are really resonating A, with the client and B, is differentiated to your competitors. So why not? Let's just do the positioning kind of bottoms up. So there's no hard and fast rules. I think it really depends on the client, but I think it's a great question. All of these things are coming together. The main difference is I would say is what is the timeline of horizon that you want impact over? Is it a quarter or is it, are we talking about years and how broad or wide do you want your set of inputs to be? Very good. 
Awesome. Let's dive a bit into the nuts and bolts of the conversation, which is why performance marketing alone is not sufficient for achieving sustainable and profitable growth in today's business landscape. I think the short answer is because you're funneling all of your marketing budget at the point of purchase. And when you funnel all of your marketing budget at the point of purchase, it's just really expensive. And this is exactly why most DTC firms from Allbirds, Bonobos, Warby Parker, none of them are profitable. And why the CEO of Bonobos, Andy Dunn, famously said it's a broken business model. Now, that is not to say that we are not huge fans of performance marketing. We are. And performance marketing is wonderful for smaller size clients who, A, don't want to deal with traditional ad agencies, frankly, and B, want to demand a higher degree of accountability. And C, it's because it's more affordable. So you can take ads, you can drive traffic to your website. That's great. I think to answer your question, to go back into the, just to take a step back, the reason why performance marketing if that's the only lever you're pulling is fundamentally unprofitable, our argument is, is that there's three reasons. The first one is that as performance marketing works on an auction-based bidding system, and though you're essentially bidding, you're obviously the experts, I'm not telling you, but for the audiences, you're bidding on keywords. Now, when you're bidding on keywords, you're by that very nature, you are showing an ad to people who have, say, for example, I want to buy a bicycle. We're going to target our ads to people who have typed in best bikes for my teenage son. Should I get a mountain bike or should, should I get a speed bike? So what's happening is that they are already active within the category. Now, why is that important? The reason why it's important is that there's a wonderful statistic out of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute in Australia, which is the kind of most the most well-regarded uh, academic institute for marketing science, they have a rule called the 95-5 rule. And what the 95-5 rule states is that if you think about the lifetime revenue of a company, only 5% comes from people who are actively shopping the category right now. The other 95% are customers who don't have a need right now. They don't need a bike. They're not even thinking about a bike, but they could think about a bike in the future. Now, so why is that an issue? Well, if performance marketing is targeted only to the people on the internet with a proclivity to purchase, by definition, you're only going after the 5% of active shoppers and you're ignoring the 95%. So traditionally, this is what large broadcast advertising was very good at. It would interrupt people, whether they were in the category or not. And there's issues with that. So that's the first reason, which is one, you're only talking to a very small subset of people. The second challenge is that because you are competing when the customer is ready to buy, you're very prone to bid inflation. Both you and every other competitor wants to put their ad in front of that person. And as you know now, cost per fix have gone up tremendously. And it's the second point is that if you filter in GDPR, it's far harder to serve a very specific ad to a very specific target. So therefore, you need to have more tries to hit the target. Long story short is because you're competing at the point of purchase, the best way I'd like to think about it is imagine a bazaar or like the Casbah and you have someone walk in and you have all the different people with stalls and they're yelling at the customer and they're like, buy now, buy now. That's essentially the fun. I'm being a bit dramatic, but that is the dynamics of performance marketing. And inevitably it's a very expensive endeavor. And so that's the second reason. And the third reason is finally, in terms of the message that you're using with performance marketing, essentially you're trying to drive a response. So you could say something, you do a hard sell. You could say two for one discount 
buy now. Or you could do the lead magnet and say, read this report and you give us our signature, or, and that could be the nature of the exchange. The challenge is none of those messages work for the 95% of people who are not actively in the category and don't want your bike lane. So for those three reasons, one, you're limiting, you're only talking to people who are in the category right now. Two, it's really expensive. And three, you're using only the message that appeals to those people who are really ready to buy. Ultimately, that's great for 5%, but for the other 95%, uh, those types of tactics don't work. And it's for precisely because of those reasons, as I said before at the top, most DTC brands are unprofitable. That's a very long-winded answer. Um, no. But that is, is how what we would art articulate the key points of our argument. That was excellent. And I, I think it's a very important point. Does it vary depending on the industry, product, or service? Because in some businesses, there is going to be very high intent behind that person searching for that product or service and there's an immediate need. If I crash my car, I'm going to look for a collision center. Is branding as important for them? Because that 5% is maybe much bigger than that 5% in a case like that. I think it's a great question. I think the way I would answer that is what is the sales cycle? So to your point, in certain categories, the length of time between the need and when I need the products is really short. Whereas in, in other use cases, think about buying enterprise software for a big business. You're going to go through, through procurement, blah, blah, blah. That's a six-month process, right? So yes, that does matter. But in both of those cases, what we would argue one of the brilliant things about brand marketing, and not all brand marketing does this, and brand marketing has issues because it's not accountable, it's fluffy and expensive for all of those reasons, and that's what we're on a mission to solve. But the great thing about brand marketing in terms of how we define it is that in both of those use cases, what if that customer already knew the brand name before they entered the category? And so with car insurance, I whack someone or I get whacked, I Google I'm just going to go with Allstate. I'm just going to go with Geico. Why mm. bother spending time evaluating the pros and cons between insurance product A, B, and C? And so what brand marketing does, and fundamentally the, what we would argue the role of brand is, and we like talking about brand in more economic terms, not in terms of emotional fluffy stuff. What brands fundamentally do is they serve as efficient heuristics. It helps consumers make really quick decisions. That's what a heuristic is. There's a famous economist called Daniel Kahneman. He had this book called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. He talked about there's two types of thinking. One is system one, the other one is system two. System one's type of thinking is very quick reaction. We don't want to call it irrational, but it's I use shortcuts, right? So I, if I cross the road, I'm not going to look left and right and see, evaluate the speed of the cars. I'm going to look at the stop sign because I know green means go and red means stop. In a similar type of way, what a brand, a strong brand can signify to people is that, hey, I can trust these guys. I don't need to evaluate the difference between insurance brand A, B, and C. I know Geico, 15%, 15, or 15 minutes gives me 15% off. I'm just going to go with that. And so that's the economic value of a strong brand, is, which is you completely cut out the, the evaluation between one brand and another. And when someone does come into the category from that 95 to 5, they're not even going to search and evaluate, they'll just go straight to you. Having another big plus of having a very strong brand and a lot of businesses and marketers don't consider this point is the length of leash that you have when you get a client or customer in the door. 
because if you have a very strong brand, like a great example, this case in point, like we've have a podcast, we're out there very active on social media, going to several events, speaking on stages, all that type of stuff is all just building that brand. And when I have a client come in the door to our agency that has listened to our podcast for six months, watch me speak on stage at an event, and then they become a client that client is with us for a very long time. So when you go through the ripple stages of an onboard potentially where they have that buyer's remorse, a lot of times it's subsided because, hey, I trust him. I've known him for six months. I've been listening to his podcast. I made the decision to buy from him rather than an instinct buy in performance marketing where it's, I'm just going to buy this product because it's a great deal. I want to download this freebie. You know what I mean? Where I find with those clients that come in the door, there's a much shorter leash with them. I would totally mirror that point. Any client that we have acquired and there's been a bit of an impersonal buying process, either through an RFP, we've haggled over the price, so on and so forth. It's far more kind of full contact, no relationship, quick in and, in, quick in and out. Whereas any client who has come to us organically, they've knocked on our door. To your point, it's been a far more pleasant experience and, and, and the relationship has gone on to this day. So 100%. And I'm sure the lifetime value of that customer is far greater as well. 100%. If there's one thing I swear by, it's this. To be as effective as you possibly can be, you've got to focus on one thing. Just the one thing. This is why I merged my social media agency with an SEO company so we could become more versatile in the digital marketing space. If you're in the business and you're dealing with multiple contacts for all of your digital assets and taking up a whole ton of your time, that doesn't need to happen. Contact Merged Media and we'll set up a call and see if there's a fit. Or go on over to merged.ca, M-E-R-G-E-D dot C-A. So when you're starting to work with a new business on the branding side of it, how does that conversation start for you? What we try to do is... First of all, we acknowledge that the concept of brand is fuzzy, has been misarticulated, and has been mishandled. And I think that's the first kind of point of departure where we start the conversation. And what we try to help them and often build a business case for, so we'll work with marketing directors or CMOs who will say, hey, I need your help to build a business case for brand. How can we secure a brand budget? So what we'll do is we'll go in and we will do an audit. We'll do we'll look at their purchase funnels. We will look at their share of search, all of those different types of things. And we help them build a business case for investing in brand. And we help them take that to their CEO, to their CFO, and secure the budget for brand building. So that's the first step. The second step is we don't say, okay, let's now that we have the budget, let's just do some campaigns. The, as the biggest driver of advertising effectiveness is the positioning of the brand. So we start there and we'll say, let's talk about how your brand is positioned. Let's look at your visual identity. Let's look at the core elements of your brand. Let's get that because if you get that, two things will happen. One, more people will notice your ad. So your advertising spend is more effective. Two, once they come to your website, they'll convert better. <laughs> and so doing that upfront prep work has benefits across the funnel. And then the third thing that we'll do is so we'll do the brand, we'll, we'll do the business case for brand, we'll do the brand development, which is the positioning and the identity. And but before going into campaigns, we're doing a lot of, and this is a new thing, but we're doing a lot of portfolio work. And what we mean by portfolio work is that any company that has multi-products or multi-sets of solutions 
often they tend to be very product-driven organizations. So there's different, there's different teams, they own different products, and every single product has its own kind of page on the site architecture, and none of them talk to each other. And so that's wrong for a number of reasons. Why? Because often there's a single customer who could use multiple, who could buy multiple products. And so what happens in a lot of these product-driven organizations is essentially you have 30 companies lumped together and people are running demand gen to each one of those different product pages. And so what no one has done is actually applied brand thinking to not the product, but the portfolio and say, let's actually take an outside in look at how we group together our products what is the logic behind that? And let's simplify all of those things together. And often what we'll do is we'll create product families. So we'll go from 50 different SKUs to just five families. And what that does is it does a number of things. One, it actually is a more efficient way of telling the story of the brand. Hey, these are all the different things that we're doing without relying on a marketing budget. Two, it encourages upsell and cross-sell. Why? Because you're allowing consumers to more easily navigate and discover your portfolio. And three, you're encouraging cooperation between these teams, which often never talk to each other in the first place. Again, apologies, long answer, but that is that tends to be the full lifetime of the types of things that we do with our clients. Uh, that last point you brought up there, Faisal, is so important because it's a matter of marrying that messages, the message that you're putting out there with the user that's seeing it or the person that's seeing it. And the closer you can marry that message with the person seeing it, the better result you're always going to get. Especially nowadays, like if it was 2016, maybe a little different, but nowadays there's your environment online is so noisy that you're spending most of your time just trying to get through the noise, right? And get the things that really matter. It's a really good point. I, uh, it's a really good point because I would argue consumers don't buy products. They buy the solution to their problems. They buy a set of capabilities that can solve their problems. So one of the big things that I find a lot of brands do is they have this mistaken assumption that people actually know what their product names are. So there's like awareness in product names. We're working with Morningstar. Morningstar is a large financial services institution. They have a range of products. All of the quant research showed, even though despite putting millions of dollars in marketing each one of those products, which you do need to put money in to drive demand gen to products, but no one actually knows the names of these products at all. We did a similar type of study at Shell. Royal Dutch Shell. They did the same thing for a lot of their subbrands, VMAX, this, that. No one, consumers don't know these things. They don't have an encyclopedic catalog of your different subbrands and products like the way you do. Come on. So I think the more outside in, the more we can apply brand thinking to the portfolio, that can be an absolutely huge lever for a lot of companies and brands. Faisal, this has been awesome. If our audience has any questions for you or what's the best way for them to get in touch? Reach out to us at creativebusinesscompany.com. Check me out at Faisal Siddiqui on LinkedIn. So Creative Business Company, Faisal Siddiqui on LinkedIn. We post a lot. Yeah, just reach out. We've got a lot of videos. We've got a lot. Check out our white papers, how to build a big brand on a small budget. We're everywhere on the interwebs. Cool. Awesome. We end every episode with the same question. That question is this. If you could choose one person, dead or alive, to represent your brand, who would it be and why? I love asking a branding person that question. Wow. <laughs> it's hard to, for me to answer that with complete objectivity or, of our firm just because it's so personal. But uh -huh. I'll answer that in, in a way that is just resonates with me. I was always very fond of, and I very much looked up to Bobby Kennedy. So Bobby Kennedy um, was absolutely my hero growing up. I was a huge politics geek. And if you ask me why, it was because he was fighting for civil rights in the early mm -hmm. 60s. He was mm -hmm. the quiet of the two brothers. His brother was the 
might tell you a bit about my family dynamic, but anyways, <laughs> he was the quieter of the two brothers and he fought for civil rights and he was very articulate and he knew how to reduce very complex arguments into, into words and into concepts that people could understand. So that's who I'm going with, Bobby Kennedy. Love it. Awesome. Not Bobby Kennedy Jr., by the way, who's running for president now, who's a bit of a psychotic person. His dad. Nope. Got it. Just caveat, caveat that. Yeah. Basil, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you. Lovely. Thanks, Jason. Real quick, guys, if you are active on Instagram or TikTok, I encourage you to go on over and give my personal profile a follow at J Hunt Official, J A Y H U N T O F F I C I A L. Over there on Instagram and TikTok, I'm posting my favorite highlights from the Merged Marketing Podcast, along with some of the highlights from my speaking engagements uh, overseas as well as locally. Ton of value. Go on over and check it out at J Hunt Official. I'd like to thank you for listening to the Merged Marketing Podcast, and I invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode of the Merged Marketing Podcast. One of the best ways to do that is to add us to your Instagram at Merged Media, M-E-R-G-E-D-M-E-D-I-A. Going over there, give Merged Media a follow and subscribe and never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.